Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, the wife of a successful Atlanta lawyer is abducted and killed in front of the couple's small children. What began as a murder investigation brought light to a shady underworld that had permeated the system built to protect people. Welcome to Episode 9 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. The sun had long set by 10pm on November 29, 1992 when the quiet neighbourhood of King's Cove was lit up by the headlights of a white SUV. There was nothing untoward about the residential street in Marietta, Georgia. The SUV pulled into the garage of 330 King's Court. A mother, a young son and their dog got out of the car and headed for the front door. Another little boy was still sleeping peacefully in the back seat. When they opened the door, they were stunned to see a man standing in front of them. The dog began to bark at the intruder but was kicked away. The stranger demanded that the woman and her son get back in the car. They were in no position to argue, as the man was holding a sawed-off shotgun. The woman sat in the driver's seat. Her eldest son sat next to her. In the rearview mirror, she could see the armed intruder climb into the seat behind her. Her other son was still sleeping. The man put the barrel of the gun to the back of the woman's head and ordered her to drive. She panicked and did not know the address he told her to travel to, so he instructed her to drive down a dead end. The woman pulled the car over to the side of the road as her youngest child began to stir. The little boy began to pull at the gunman's clothes, probably still sleepy and unaware of what danger he was in. The mother pleaded with the man not to hurt her children, offering him her purse and the car. The noise from a single blast from the sawed-off shotgun that had been aimed at the back of the driver's head echoed through the silent street. The SUV continued to roll. The woman slumped lifeless over the steering wheel until it slowed to a stop in a field. The man ran from the vehicle, leaving the two little boys alone with their mother's body. The older child reached across and turned off the engine. Blood had covered the children and the inside of the car. Bravely, the boy helped his little brother from the back seat, and they ran hand in hand to the nearest house. The resident of the home heard frantic knocking on the door. When he opened it, the boy asked him to call his grandfather because he was a doctor and could make his mother better. The boys identified their mother as Sarah Tokars. 
The children were six-year-old Ricky and four-year-old Mike. The Cobb County Police arrived at the scene. This was not an area they expected to see such a violent crime. Atlanta police had become accustomed to this level of crime in the city 15 miles northwest, but Marietta was thought to be safe. Ricky and Mike Tokars were checked over by paramedics. They were covered in blood, but it was not theirs. Both of the boys were physically unharmed. Ricky was able to tell officers about the events that led to his mother being shot and even gave a description of the, quote, bad man who had a pirate gun. The suspect was believed to be a slender black male who had been wearing dark clothing and a green knitted cap. Police had to run the license plate of Sarah Tokar's Toyota 4Runner to find the boy's home address. Officers also had to contact Sarah's husband, Fred, who was away on business in Alabama. Sarah and Fred Tokars had first met in high school, but did not stay in touch. They had both grown up in Buffalo, New York. Years later, in the mid-80s, they crossed paths again while they were both living in Atlanta, Georgia. Sarah was working as a nightclub promoter at the time and was living with her sister Chrissy. Sarah's father John was a doctor and she had wanted to spend her life with a man who had what she saw as a noble career like her father. Tokar seemed to fit the bill. He worked at the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and prosecuted criminals. Tokars was ambitious. He seemed to continually climb the career ladder starting with a degree in accounting and then became a lawyer by attending night classes. He made a name for himself as someone with expertise in financial crime, like money laundering, and even lectured at colleges and police departments. Tokars was dubbed Fast Fred by his co-workers at the DA's office. Sarah and Fred had a small wedding in 1985 and a year later she gave birth to their first child, Ricky. Sarah had always wanted a family, to raise her children in a loving home like what she had experienced herself. She adored children and had worked as an elementary teacher in Florida before she moved to Atlanta. It seemed as though her wishes were coming true. The newlyweds bought a beautiful home in King's Cove and Sarah continued to work as a promoter. When the nightclub industry was hit by changes in legislation and could no longer afford to hire promoters, Sarah stayed home with Ricky. Tokar started his own legal practice, but instead of working in prosecution, he was now defending the criminals he had taught others to detect. Sarah was nervous about her husband's new clientele and asked him to get an alarm installed at their home. Tokars had been trying to expand his prominence by taking on high-profile cases, as well as buying television adverts and publishing numerous press releases. In fact, he had represented Pauline Holyfield during her divorce from boxer Evander Holyfield. In 1988, the Tokars had a second son, Michael, often referred to as Mike. Her sister later said that Sarah did not want Ricky to be an only child. Sarah volunteered as a teacher's aide at St. Judge Catholic Church in Sandy Springs twice a week which was where her sons were enrolled. Sarah was an exceptionally devoted mother who took pleasure from being in the presence of children. She always joined in, playing games and singing songs. She enjoyed the job so much she refused to be paid for it. She just loved to be there. Her husband was often away from home or working late 
and Sarah tried to make up for it by being as involved as possible. Sarah travelled to Bradenton, Florida often to visit her family. She would drive the almost 10-hour journey with the boys in the car for company. If her husband joined them, he travelled by plane. Sarah and the boys had gone to Florida just days before Sarah was murdered. They arrived on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Sarah and the children drove down and picked tow cars up at Tampa Bay Airport. While at her parents' house, their alarm sounded twice at their home back in Georgia. They told the security company to turn the alarm off. They lived in a safe neighbourhood and would be home the next day. There was also supposed to be someone coming to fix their water heater too. Tokars left earlier than Sarah and the children. They were going to stay one more night before getting on the road on Sunday afternoon. Tokars called Sarah's parents to ask what time Sarah and the boys would be back at the house. Sarah's father told him around 10pm. Tokars had a meeting in Montgomery, Alabama, where he had planned on staying in a hotel. He was there when he got the call that his wife had been murdered in front of their children. After informing Sarah Tokar's family about her death, investigators canvassed the neighbourhood. Bill Rhodes lived close to the Tokar's family. He told investigators that the alarm in the house had sounded a few times over the weekend. He also said that their dog Jack came running over to his house late on that Sunday night. The dog's lead was still attached. The investigators did not believe that the alarm had sounded due to a robbery. When they searched the home, they did not find anything in disarray. It was unlikely that Sarah interrupted a burglar so long after the alarm had gone off. Chief Detective Arthur Allred of the Cobb County Police said, It's a very bizarre case. Where it happened, the circumstances, the children being there. This one works on everyone's emotions, even hard detectives. The intruder had left no trace of their presence in the house. There were also virtually no clues in Sarah's SUV. There were no shell casings found and no fingerprints. Whoever had been in the house must have known how to get there and how to get inside. It was a relatively secluded area away from the main roads. The Tokar's property was not a place you would stumble across by chance. You had to travel along a winding road to get there. Another neighbour had seen a white van parked near the property before the shooting. Police believe this sighting was likely an innocent one, just the repairman who had come to fix the water heater. Fred Tokars rushed back from Alabama to be with his children as soon as he received the devastating news. Having worked as an attorney, Tokars was all too familiar with the prospect of being suspected in his wife's death. He spoke briefly with the police in the presence of a lawyer, and he allowed them to walk through the home with him. Tokars brought them to the basement where he kept all of his legal files and his safe. It was open, but Tokars was unsure if anything had been taken. His attorney, Howard Weintraub, assured the police they would schedule a more thorough interview after Sarah's funeral. A pathologist confirmed that Sarah was killed by a single gunshot to the back of the head. The bullet was thought to have come from a 410 shotgun. On December 3rd, just days after her murder, Hundreds of mourners gathered inside St. Jude the Apostle Catholic Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia. There was a heavy police and media presence who watched as Fred Tokars carried his wife's coffin to her final resting place, Arlington Memorial Park. 
the investigators wanted to speak with Tokars and the couple's young sons. It was thought that maybe Sarah was killed by someone who held a grudge against Tokars for his prosecutorial work, or someone he had defended. Investigators later announced that they were working under the assumption that it had been a contract killing or a botch kidnapping. They believed that revenge or ransom were the most likely motives for the crime. But they still had no suspects. Within days, Sarah's sister Chrissy and her cousin Mary Rose came to the police station with a file in hand. After passing it to detectives, Chrissy told them that Sarah had given her the file years earlier and made her promise to take it to the police if anything happened to her. The file contained statements from offshore bank accounts that Fred Tokars had set up. Sarah's sister believed that Sarah had been keeping it as leverage to get Tokars to agree to a divorce. She said Sarah was afraid that Tokars would take the children and had been, quote, scared and intimidated. Sarah's other sister Gretchen said that Fred Tokars had seemed very anxious and he said that he was scared. He also told Gretchen and his mother that he did not want to help the police because he did not want them to look into his business dealings. When speaking with Sarah's sister Chrissy and neighbours, it emerged that the marriage was not as perfect as it seemed. Fred Tokars had always appeared to be quite domineering in their relationship. Chrissy said that after Ricky was born, he did not want Sarah to be a housewife. He controlled their finances and would only give her a certain amount of money each week. He claimed this was because Sarah had a history of debt but the control went deeper. Sarah was strictly forbidden from going into the basement, where Tokars kept his work files and safe. He was inattentive, distant and often seemed dismissive of his wife's wishes. He ignored her aspirations in favour of his own. Tokars complained when she wanted to visit her family in Florida and refused to give her money to go. If he travelled there, he would always fly. But Sarah and the children had to drive. When Tokars changed legal teams from the DA's office to criminal defence, Sarah was concerned. Not only were Tokars' clients associated with drug trafficking and money laundering, but they also paid in cash. She was afraid that his association with criminals would put her and the children in danger. Sarah told a neighbour she had asked Tokars to install an alarm for that reason. Fred Tokars had been charming and seemed to be guided by a strong moral compass at the beginning of their relationship. Still now he was evasive and rarely spent time at home. Sarah began to suspect her husband was having an affair, so she hired a private investigator, Ralph Perdomo. She told the PI that she wanted to get a divorce, but Sarah was terrified that Tokars would gain full custody of the children and that she would be kept from seeing them. Tokars was well respected. He had many contacts and friends in high places. He had donated to political campaigns and knew most of the Atlanta legal community. He had threatened to use that influence if Sarah ever left him. Sarah had begun saving money and putting it aside to leave her husband, but he did not know that yet. Sarah also told the private investigator that Tokars had been physically abusive towards her before. When Ralph Podomo confirmed Sarah's suspicion that her husband was unfaithful, she decided she would get the leverage she needed to leave him without losing her children. She went into the basement and opened the safe. Inside the safe were bottles of medication, cash and documents showing bank accounts and business names. 
The investigator advised her to give copies of the documents to someone she trusted, as it would be against the law for him to hold on to them. She also made him swear that he would go to the police with the information he had uncovered if anything had happened to her. He kept his promise. A week before she was killed, Sarah had told a neighbour, Sarah Sutler, I can divorce Fred now because I have the goods on him and he'll not get my boys. Sarah believed she had proof of tax evasion, but it was so much more. When the news broke that Sarah had hired a private investigator prior to her death, there was a media frenzy. The reasons why she had hired Ralph Podomo had not yet been made public. Fred Tokar's public relations agent, Brenda Fontaine, was quick to state, Our only speculation is that Fred represented some really strange people and that Sarah was more worried about them than Fred was. On December 6, 1992, Tokars was formally interviewed by the police. In the presence of his lawyer, he admitted that his clients were criminals. He mentioned a man named James Mason, who he represented. Mason was a nightclub owner with connections to high-power individuals in political and legal circles. Tokars was also linked to Willie Harris, who was the vice president of Atlanta Entertainment Management Incorporated. Harris had been arrested for drug trafficking and was represented by Tokars. A month after Harris pleaded guilty to the charges, a man named Julius Klein was shot dead. Klein had been a business associate of Tokars and a partner in the Parrot Club. Fred Tokars was also a partner in this club. It was believed that the club was set up as a front to launder money. Tokars admitted to police that he had been unfaithful to Sarah and that he knew she had hired a private investigator. He said they had gone to couples counselling and their marriage was getting back on track. When asked about any insurance policies, Tokars admitted to having Sarah's life insured for almost $2 million. Investigators searched Tokar's legal office after the interview. They found further evidence of offshore banking and business. The Cobb County investigators asked the FBI for assistance in the case. The documents provided by Sarah's sister were inspected by Special Agent Michael Twibble at the field office in Atlanta. The documents revealed that Fred Tokars had set up offshore accounts and corporations in different people's names in Atlanta. The amount shown in the accounts exceeded the amount Tokars had declared according to tax records. From the documents, investigators were able to link Tokars to a number of well-known criminals as more than their attorney. One of his clients, Anthony Brown, was a notorious cocaine dealer. He had been arrested in August 1992, and when police searched his vehicle, they found $50,000 in cash and documents that showed Tokars had set up a nightclub business for him to allow him to launder his illegal gains. The documents regarding the businesses had listed a private investigator as one of the owners of a nightclub. When questioned, he admitted that Fred Tokars had hired him to solicit drug dealers to go into business together to deposit their money into offshore accounts. He also used the nightclub business as a front, as most transactions were cash in hand allowing the drug dealers to legitimately lodge their drug money into official bank accounts. The DEA were also brought in to assist in the investigation, as it now appeared there was drug trafficking involved. It seemed that Tokars, who had presented himself as an expert in financial crime, 
from a prosecutorial standpoint had used his expertise to his own advantage. Another man Fred Tokars was linked to was Eddie Lawrence. Lawrence had an outstanding warrant for writing bad checks, so on December 12th the police decided to bring him in for questioning. Lawrence had been a client of Tokars, and they were also business partners in a mortgage company. Eddie Lawrence adamantly denied having any involvement in criminal activity with Fred Tokars or the murder of Sarah Tokars. Once word got out that Lawrence had been arrested, a confidential informant came forward. The informant told police that Lawrence had been asking around about a hitman. He had wanted to kill a woman who stood in the way of a lot of money. The informant gave the police the name of the hitman, Curtis Rower. Rower was on probation following a car theft and was a known drug addict. He also went by the nickname Cornbread. The informant was Curtis Rower's sister's boyfriend. Rower's sister worked for Eddie Lawrence. The informant told police that Lawrence had approached him first and offered him $5,000 to kill someone, but he refused. Curtis Rower offered to do it. On December 23rd, armed with arrest warrants, police went to a house in southwest Atlanta. They were told that Rower was not home, but officers weren't convinced. They entered the house and heard noises coming from a bedroom. They found Rower hiding beneath the bed. Eddie Lawrence was arrested the same day. Curtis Rower admitted to killing Sarah Tokars and was charged with her murder. Eddie Lawrence refused to admit anything and was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. In a news conference, investigators announced that Sarah had been murdered after she found information in Fred Tokar's safe that implicated her husband and his business associates in illegal activities. When the police called Fred Tokar's, who was with his in-laws in Florida, he did not seem relieved by the news that his wife's killer had been found. The following day, Tokars was not answering the phone in his hotel room. Concerned, Sarah's father, John, called the hotel and asked them to check on Tokars. The door was locked, and a Do Not Disturb sign had been placed on the handle. When they finally got into the room, they found Fred Tokars on the bed unresponsive. He had overdosed on sleeping tablets. A suicide note left on the locker in the room had been written by him. In it, he apologised that his lifestyle had caused his family pain and that Sarah was a great woman that he was going to die for. But he was not dead. Medical staff were able to revive him and Tokars was released from hospital days later. Meanwhile, the family were trying to celebrate Christmas for the sake of the boys. Cobb County District Attorney Tom Sheron said he wanted the boys to come in to view a police lineup, but were giving them some time with their family first. He said, Those poor children have gone through hell. First they see their mother killed in front of them, and now this with their father. My heart really goes out for those Tokars boys. Ricky had gone to a police lineup but was unable to positively identify anyone. He was only six, and the trauma of his mother's murder made it difficult for him to remember anything. The police had announced that they wanted to speak to Fred Tokars in relation to his wife's murder but Tokars had left the hospital in Florida and travelled back to Atlanta. He shut his law practice and put the King's Cove house on the market. 
Then on December 31, 1992, he finally spoke with the press. At a news conference, he said that he had not only lost his wife, but his whole lifestyle. The children were left in the care of Sarah's family, and Tokars moved to West Palm Beach, Florida with his mother. After police had announced that Curtis Rower had admitted to killing Sarah, Tokar's attorney spoke to the media. He said that his client Fred Tokars had been wrongly accused of soliciting his wife's murder by a mentally ill drug addict. Tokars stated that he was under a lot of pressure. Police revealed that Rower had admitted to pulling the trigger, but insisted that Eddie Lawrence had made him do it. Rower's sister and her boyfriend had told police that they had seen him with a sawed-off shotgun and that he had admitted to murdering Sarah Tokars. In his confession, Curtis Rower told the police that Eddie Lawrence had offered him $5,000 to kill Sarah Tokars and that the money would be coming from a lawyer. He said that before Thanksgiving, he and Lawrence had entered the Tokar's home through a broken patio door. Lawrence told Rower that the alarm would be left off and that Sarah would be sleeping in the children's bedroom. It was early in the morning and Sarah and the children were still upstairs. The family dog began barking at the intruders and so they left. A few days later, Sunday, November 29th, they were told to try again. When Sarah pulled into the garage before 10pm that night, Roa was waiting inside the house. Lawrence had left. In a panic, Roa forced the mother and her son into the car. He got into the back seat and aimed the 410 sawed-off shotgun at the back of Sarah's head. He instructed her to drive to Atlanta and she refused. She pulled over to the side of the road and Eddie Lawrence came over to the side of the car. Rowa said that it seemed as though Sarah Tokars had recognised Eddie Lawrence and she began to scream. She pushed Ricky to the floor and suddenly accelerated, turning the wheel to the left, knocking Lawrence to the ground. Rower claimed he shot her at that point and jumped out of the car before it drove through bushes into a field. Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence then fled in Lawrence's car. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The case went before a grand jury in February 1993. Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence were indicted on five felony counts, including malice murder, kidnapping, serious bodily injury and armed robbery. Investigators were still building a case against Fred Tokars, who was at this point still a free man. Phone records revealed that Tokars had called Eddie Lawrence on numerous occasions on the day of Sarah's murder. Tokars had also called Sarah's father to find out what time Sarah and the children would be home. In June of that year, Fred Tokars attempted to sue Sarah's parents so he could collect the $1.75 million life insurance policy. It emerged that Sarah had rewritten her will, leaving everything to her children and nothing to her husband. During the summer, Eddie Lawrence had negotiated a plea deal with the state. He would admit to everything. He confessed that he owed Tokars over $70,000, and in the weeks before the murder, Fred Tokars had asked him to kill his wife. 
Tokars had told Lawrence that his wife wanted to divorce him and take everything. Lawrence said he advised Tokars to let her have it. But Tokars insisted that he worked too hard for it, and all she did was spend his money. Tokars had at first asked for Sarah to be killed at his office in Atlanta, but Lawrence refused. Fred Tokars then asked Lawrence to do it in the family home while he was out of town. When Lawrence asked Tokars about the children witnessing it, Tokars allegedly replied, quote, They will be all right. They will get over it. They're young. Tokars offered Eddie Lawrence $25,000 and a portion of the life insurance money to go through with the hit. Lawrence said that he didn't have the guts to kill someone, so he asked Curtis Rower to do it for $5,000. Lawrence also said that Tokars told him Sarah would be coming back from Florida on that Sunday night, and he wanted her killed then. Tokars rang Lawrence throughout the day to let him know the alarm was off, the back door was open and that he would be in Alabama with a client so he would have an alibi. Lawrence told the police that he picked up Roa at 7pm. Roa had brought a shotgun and they drove to the Tokars' house. Roa got out of the car and went inside to wait while Lawrence waited down the street. Eddie Lawrence later said he saw Curtis Roa run from Sarah's SUV and they drove to Atlanta. Police checked Fred Tokar's alibi. He had gone to Montgomery, Alabama to meet with Wilbert Humphreys, a client he was representing in a money laundering case. When the authorities spoke to Humphreys, he said that he had not been expecting Tokars, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. He said that despite him wanting to talk to his attorney about his case, Tokars just asked him to sign some papers and left after 10 minutes. Humphreys said Tokars appeared to be in a hurry. On August 25th, 1993, a federal grand jury returned an indictment that charged Fred Tokars and a co-defendant, James Mason, with racketeering, drug and money laundering crimes. They also added charges of racketeering conspiracy, violence in aid of racketeering, murder for hire, conspiracy to possess and distribute cocaine, and conspiracy to launder money. Fred Tokar's defence attorney, Jerry Fralick, described the situation as trumped-up charges based on lies. Following his arrest, Sarah's parents, John and Phyllis Ambrusco, were given temporary custody of the children, Ricky and Mike. In the space of just nine months, they had witnessed their mother being brutally murdered before their eyes, and now their father had been arrested in connection with her murder. Detective Pat Banks was the one with the boys when their father was arrested. He said that he took them to a McDonald's and tried to calm them down. They were both crying as Detective Banks explained to them that sometimes adults do stupid things and that they were not to blame for anything. In the indictment following Tokar's arrest, it was revealed that he had been involved in a vast drug trafficking and money laundering ring. The ring was started in 1986. Eight men, one of which was Fred Tokars, had used violence and intimidation tactics to protect their assets and avoid detection from the authorities. The indictment read that they had resorted to kidnapping, torture and murder to protect their operations and themselves. Investigators allege that the ring maintained secrecy by threatening physical harm to anybody who disclosed the nature and scope of the operation. The ring controlled a number of nightclubs in the Atlanta area, 
and used Tokar's law practice to conceal money made from drug trafficking. The indictment also said that members of the group transported cocaine from Miami and Los Angeles to the Atlanta area. A member of the drug and money laundering ring had been Julius Klein, who was shot the previous year. In early November, it was announced that Fred Tokars would be facing the death penalty if convicted of Sarah's murder. When the one-year anniversary of the killing came around, Sarah's family spoke with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They said that Ricky and Mike still lived in fear that the person described as the bad man with the pirate gun would return. As their aunt Chrissy said, when you're little, your greatest fears are of shadows, the unknown and the bogeyman. Their worst fears came true. During the federal trial in early 1994, it was disclosed that federal investigators had used RICO statutes to secure a prosecution. These types of trials require that a defendant is proven to have engaged in two or more instances of racketeering and that they were directly linked in criminal enterprise. Eddie Lawrence was a key prosecution witness and had been kept in a secure location prior to the trial. Lawrence testified that Fred Tokars had solicited him to kill his wife, Sarah. He reiterated the story he had told investigators, but the defence was not convinced. Under cross-examination, defence attorney Bobby Lee Cook tried to poke holes in Lawrence's testimony and accused him of inconsistencies. Cook suggested it was actually Lawrence who killed Sarah. Attorney Cook asked, Isn't it a fact that she did see you? She recognised you, and you grabbed the gun and she was shot. No, Lawrence replied. A number of family members also testified regarding Sarah's behaviour before her murder. Her sister Chrissy said that Sarah had shown her several documents which suggested that Tokars was hiding hundreds of thousands of dollars in offshore accounts. The names on the accounts were of Tokars' children, but inverted. A recorded interview between investigators and Tokars was played by the prosecution. In the recording, he referred to Sarah as the perfect wife whom he loved very much. He insisted that he had no idea that Sarah may have been planning on divorcing him before her murder. Tokar said that they had their ups and downs and admitted that he had flings in the past. But as he said, it was always like, one time, you know. Fred Tokars was then called as a defence witness. He cried as he told the jury that his life had been ruined. He said that the media blamed Sarah's death on him. Tokars also denied that he had threatened to take the boys away from Sarah. The defence put forward the theory that it was Eddie Lawrence who had killed Sarah because Tokars was about to stop financing Lawrence's real estate and construction enterprises. Fred Tokars said, I couldn't really trust him to manage money. I told him I wasn't going to give him any more money. Tokars ended his testimony by reading out his suicide note. It read in part, I am sorry for the pain and sorrow my lifestyle has inflicted upon you. I never wanted Sarah or anybody to die or get hurt. Please explain to my friends my weakness and let them know what happened. I can't live with all this pressure. I am sorry for all the pain and suffering that I have caused everyone. But I love Sarah, never hurt her, and I have now died for her. The press have made me feel like a suspect. I shouldn't be. The torture has weakened me to the point where I can't take it anymore. I want to die. 
The defence team also focused heavily on the fact that two investigators working on the case had signed movie deals eight months before Fred Tokars was arrested. They were subsequently fired from the Cobb County Police. During closing arguments, Assistant U.S. Attorney Parker called Fred Tokars a greedy hypocrite who snuffed out the life of his wife to protect his illicit lifestyle. Defence lawyers said there were inconsistencies with Eddie Lawrence's testimony. Speaking of Lawrence, who got what was described as the deal of the century, Defence Attorney Freilich said, He'll be back out on the streets. Lock your doors, ladies and gentlemen. Lock your doors. Following the closing arguments, the federal jury was sent away to deliberate. On April 8th, 1994, they found Fred Tokars guilty of eight federal charges, including racketeering, kidnapping, using the telephone to set up a murder, and money laundering. As the sentence was read out, Fred Tokars showed little emotion. Sarah's sisters burst into tears and hugged one another. James Mason, Tokar's co-defendant, was also found guilty on the eight racketeering charges. Tokar's was subsequently sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mason was sentenced to 16 years and eight months. With the federal trial complete, state prosecution proceedings began. Eddie Lawrence's plea deal with the authorities meant that he received a sentence of 12 and a half years in federal prison, followed by life in state prison with the possibility of parole. He was sentenced in June 1994. The trial for the man who pulled the trigger began at the start of 1997. Because of his tape confession, the defence was simply trying to avoid him being given the death penalty. In Curtis Rower's confession, he had said that Eddie Lawrence came up to the car before he shot Sarah. Ricky Tokars was called as a prosecution witness to dispute this claim. Ricky said there had only been one man in the car, and no struggle like Rower had said. The little boy broke down in tears numerous times on the stand as he recalled witnessing his mother's murder and helping his little brother out of the back seat. Several of Curtis Rower's friends testified that the night of the murder, he arrived home wearing bloody shoes, while others testified that Rower had confessed to them that he had committed murder. Joseph Burton, Cobb County's chief medical examiner, was also called to testify during the trial. He said that based on photographs of Sarah's car and her wounds, it was possible that Rowe's version of events was true. However, he could not determine for sure. Both versions provided to the court were possible. After all the evidence was heard, the jury was sent to deliberate. Curtis Rower's defence lawyer made an unusual move of asking them to find his client guilty during his closing arguments. But the judge had to call a mistrial when one juror refused to convict Rower and ordered the defendant to be retried. Almost three years after Fred Tokars was sentenced to four consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole by a federal jury, he stood trial for the murder of his wife, Sarah. The trial had been moved to a small town in northwest Georgia due to the pre-trial publicity. Much of the evidence presented was the same as it had been at the federal trial. There were more witnesses who testified about Fred Tokars and his relationship with Sarah. An exotic dancer named Dion Fearon testified that she had an affair with Tokars in 1992. 
She said that Tokars told her he wanted to have his wife, quote, taken care of because she was nosy and wanted a divorce. A sex worker, Patricia Williams, who Fred Tokars had paid $100 to perform sex acts in a limousine, also testified that Tokars had told her he was looking for a hitman to kill his wife because she was going to take all his money. She, quote, knew too much. A convicted bank robber also offered evidence but provided a different motivation. According to John Roberts, Fred Tokars confessed to him that he ordered his wife to be murdered because he needed the money from her life insurance to pay a debt he owed to a drug dealer. Roberts also claimed that Tokars had offered him $10,000 to kill Eddie Lawrence before he could testify. To prove that he had the money, John Roberts said that Tokars had his mother send Roberts two money orders totaling $350. When detectives first spoke to Fred Tokars, he was hysterical and smelled of alcohol. He told them that his attorneys had tried to get him to have a drink to help him calm down. The first call he made was to his attorneys. Fred Tokars was not very cooperative from the beginning of the investigation. He did not tell detectives much about how the house was secured or about his business dealings. It was believed that Tokars had even disconnected the phone line at the King's Cove house before he went to Alabama on the day of his wife's murder. Sarah's father, John Ambrusco, had been waiting for Sarah to call him to let him know they got home safe. He even tried to call, but the line was busy. Throughout the investigation, Tokars spoke through his attorneys, who often told the media that their client was in despair and being railroaded by the police. During the trial, prosecutors had argued that Tokars was the master puppeteer who pulled the strings that ended the life of Sarah. It was their belief that Sarah had confronted her husband with the documents she found, the proof that he was conducting illegal business, and said that she was going to get a divorce. Fred Tokars went to Eddie Lawrence, who owed him a substantial amount of money and offered to write that debt off and pay him $25,000 plus some of the life insurance money if he killed Sarah. Lawrence could not go through with killing someone, so he got Curtis Rower, a man desperate for cash to satisfy his addiction, to be the trigger man. Fred Tokars gave the men all the information they needed. They knew no one would be home when they broke in on the evening of November 29th, 1992. They knew the sliding door was broken so they could get inside. They knew the alarm was off. They knew Sarah would be home by 10pm. In closing arguments, District Attorney Tom Sharon said that greed ambition and corruption led Fred Tokars to have his wife murdered. The defence claimed that Tokars had been duped by his business partner, Eddie Lawrence. Defence attorney Jerry Fralick said, They have no physical evidence. They have nothing to tie Tokars to this. The jury was sent away to deliberate and after a day and a half, they reached a verdict. They found Fred Tokars guilty of felony murder, kidnapping and armed robbery. Tokars was sentenced to life in prison. Sarah's family had been hoping for the death penalty. Outside of court, they said that the life sentence was disappointing. After the verdict, a Cobb County judge ordered Sarah's life insurance worth $1.75 million be paid into a trust fund for Ricky and Mike. 
Curtis Rowe's second trial began shortly after Fred Tokar's two-month trial concluded. Due to the outcome of Tokar's trial in which he had been found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, Rowe decided to plead guilty. Judge George Krieger accepted the plea and told him, Mr. Rowe, each day you should think about the two children that no longer have a mother because of your actions. You should think about that every day. In exchange for his plea, Curtis Rowe received a sentence of life without parole. While incarcerated, Fred Tokars testified against a number of suspects in federal trials, resulting in securing murder case convictions. Tokars died in May 2020, aged 67. The previous decade of his life had been spent suffering from neurological conditions requiring him to use a wheelchair. Sarah Tokar's family had to sit through a federal trial, the trial proceedings for Eddie Lawrence and Curtis Rower, and Fred Tokar's state trial. In the end, they said, We have completely lost faith that the criminal justice system will render the only just punishment, the death penalty. We now know that our search for a just punishment for Sarah was a war. We could not win. Sarah Tokars had been buried at Arlington Memorial Park in Georgia. After Fred Tokars was found guilty of her murder, Sarah's family moved her remains to Mount Oliver Cemetery in New York. Sarah's mother died in 1998, and her father passed away in 2002. They were buried with their daughter. Sarah's sons, Ricky and Mike, tried not to let the trauma of their mother's murder define their lives, but the heartbreak was never far from their minds. Mike Tokars died of a pulmonary embolism in April 2020. He was just 31 years old. Sarah had longed for her children to have an upbringing like she had and they were raised by the people who raised her. Sarah Tokar's life was scrutinised as much as her husband's. Instead of being remembered for Fred Tokar's criminal schemes and her resulting murder, Sarah should be recognised as she was in life. She was a dedicated mother who spent her free time volunteering at her children's school so she could have more time with them. Sarah was a loving daughter who bought a Christmas tree before she left Florida at Thanksgiving, on the promise she would be back to decorate it. Sarah was successful in her career, and she made several powerful connections that her husband exploited for his own gain. Sarah was so committed to her family that she stayed in an abusive marriage to ensure her son's safety. Her last act had been to plead for her son's lives and push Ricky out of harm's way. When she opened the safe to try and get the leverage she needed to be able to leave her unhappy marriage, she never expected to be sealing her own fate. This episode was researched and written by Emily Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com and for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.